What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Artist and Data Science Happy Hour. Is Happy Hour number seventy-seven. Last week celebrated two years of the show. Can't believe it, man. Two years, and now seventy-seven of these happy hours, man. So, so crazy. You've been doing this for that long, man. Appreciate y'all being here. Shout out to everybody that is in the room so far. Uh, Russell, what's going on? Dream, what's going on? Eric Gitonga also is in the building. Eric, one of these days, I'm going to make it to Reflective Monday, man. I just got to say something worth reflecting on. Uh, shout out to everybody. Super excited that y'all are here. Uh, hopefully, you get a chance to tune in to the episode uh, that was released today. Is with the one and only Christina Stathopoulos, the international woman of data. Um, I say this a number of times, man. I got to get better at promoting these podcast episodes as they release. Um, and I will. I will one of these days when uh, when my baby lets me get a full night's rest and I can wake up early. That'll happen. Uh, but yeah, man, hopefully you guys get a chance to tune that. So it was a great, great chat. Uh, it was live streamed a few months back. Might have been in October or September when we had uh, live streamed that. So if you're looking for it on YouTube, it won't come up as a new video. Uh, you'll have to search for her name on my YouTube channel. But definitely check it out, man. It's a great conversation. Um, I've known Christina for about almost two years-ish, but this is the first time we've actually ever sat down and chatted one-on-one, and it was a great conversation. It was great connected with her. Uh, so I know you guys are gonna enjoy that episode. Um, on the other news, uh, well, I've been completing my second week over at Pachyderm, just onboarding, learning the product, learning more about Kubernetes and Doctors than I ever thought I would need to learn. Uh, but damn, that shit is fascinating. Interesting technologies, uh, super powerful product. I'm excited to start building out examples and use cases with that um with the product uh so super excited for that hopefully you guys are going to odsc boston if you guys will be there in boston uh look for me now i'll be at the pachyderm table giving out swag saying hi to everyone checking out some of the awesome events that are happening as well um if you do find yourself in boston uh on the 19th around i think 5 p.m go ahead and make your way to trillium brewery over at fenway um We'll have a nice gathering of people there from, from a number of different communities. Um, but it'll be great, man. So so please do come through. As always, if you want to support the podcast, there's a link in the show notes that you can go ahead and uh, support the show. Uh, I don't know when the hell my basement is going to be repaired. Nobody's been back in like over a month uh, to start working on it. So hopefully I have an office soon. Uh, this has been taking far too long. Uh, so that's that's just been pain in the ass. Um, so let's go ahead and kick off the uh, the conversation. I got uh, actually I got a, a message from Karthik Power on email uh, asking the question. He wasn't able to join it because you know this is obviously an inconvenient time for people in India. You know, but if you are in India and you do listen to this, you know that you can always send me an email and uh, I'll be able to to add your question into the session. So. Uh, this is a, a breaking into data science question. You guys know that I'm kind of like, you know, trying to move away from answering those questions because we've done so many of it. But there's also something more important about this question that I want to address, right? He's saying that, should I leave my job to prepare for a career in data science? Now, if you kind of abstract that away, it's like, okay, should I leave my current job to learn something new to break into another field? Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting question, right? Um, me personally, I feel like, you shouldn't ever quit your job just to break into another job. Like I would say, wake up at least an hour earlier, stay up an hour later, and just remove any distractions from your life and stick with it for a longer time horizon. 
you know, it might take you six to nine months as opposed to whatever, three to six months to, to get your first data science job. I'm not saying it'll take you that long to learn data science. That's preposterous. I don't think it'll ever take anyone that short amount of time to learn data science. I mean, just, you know, I got a graduate degree in math and I'm still don't know shit. Um, but yeah, should, should you, should you quit your job to focus completely on learning something new so you can pivot and break into that field? That is essentially the, the crux of the question. Uh, let's go to this. Uh, let's go to Vin. I think I've given my uh, perspective on this. My perspective is look, wake up an hour earlier, wake up two hours earlier. Don't watch any TV shows after work. Stay up an hour later. Do what you got to do to get to where you need to be. Uh, but still make sure you're getting, getting you know, money to put food on the table and, and you know, do, do what you got to do. Vin, what do you think? Then let's go to Russell. Uh, and then um, if, if anybody else wants to chime in, Eric or Maresh, let me know. Also, shout out to everybody watching on LinkedIn. If you guys got questions on LinkedIn, let me know. I'll add your question to the queue. Or if you want to join in here live in the Zoom room, uh, if you're watching on LinkedIn and want to come into the action, let me know. I'll send you a link to the Zoom room. Um, but yeah, Vin, go for it. Yeah, trying to think about leaving your job before you have another one is always scary. But I mean, I understand where he's coming from. I understand where the question at least is coming from is if you don't have time to focus on a career path because you don't have time to do the educational side of it. I mean, I kind of see where that sentiment comes from. But I, I look at that as sort of a holdover from the college academic mindset where you have to be in school full time in order to learn a new field or in order to transfer jobs. And I think I'd look at it more like a night school type of, of paradigm, if you want to look at it that way, where you've got your day job and a lot of day jobs are actually fairly flexible when it comes to giving you an evening off or giving you some time off to take some classes. And I don't mean like a ton of time off, like, you know, where you leave at four o'clock so you can get to, so you can get you your learning path and you don't have to do everything in person anymore. There's so much that's offered online. I think you can do that sort of night school model where you're learning as you go. And if it takes a little longer, I mean, it's not like the field's going anywhere. If you're in a hurry for one reason or another, you know, that maybe that's a reason to leave your job. But I, I think that maybe instead of thinking, I'm going to get there in six months, think about it's probably going to take about a year or two to do the transition. And you're going, your learning path is going to be so much higher quality if you take the extra time. And the only way you can do that is if you have an income. It's really hard to say I'm going to quit my job for a year or two years, but saying I'm going to stick with my job and then slowly just kind of concept by concept, learn data science. It's just more feasible. It makes more sense that way. And here's like an interesting twist to, to Karthik's situation. He's currently working as a data engineer. Uh, so to me, I'm like, all right, well, you're already, you're already in the game, man. Like what else is there to learn? If you're a data engineer, you do like, PySpark and Databricks. Um, is there that much else to learn yet? I mean, pick up a copy of Hands-On Machine Learning with, with Scikit-Learn or Hands-On Machine Learning with PyTorch and you know, study that an hour, hour and a half a day and you'll be good. But what are your thoughts on that, Vin? I think there's a lot more to learn. And I think this is the interesting segmentation of data science. There's no such thing as the data scientist. But if you're a data engineer, like you are a type of the data scientist. If you're an ML engineer, you are a type of the data scientist. But when you start thinking about 
really where does our field go from a value creation standpoint, from an accuracy standpoint, from solving bigger, more important problems. Now you're going to applied research. And I think that's where, you know, when you talk about like, I am a data scientist, you have to decide which kind, which flavor you're talking about. And, you know, each one of those career paths has a certain amount of longevity. I think data engineering has the least longevity. So it's a good one to pivot out of, especially if you have a year or two, because it's not like it's disappearing next week. It's going to take some time to go away, but there's so much automation in that space that I think you're going to see, you know, sort of a pullback from data engineering. And so that's not going to be a the data scientist anymore. Machine learning engineering is going to take a whole lot longer to automate if we ever do it. I just, I don't, I think it's too complex. I know other people disagree with that sentiment, but I think it's too hard to automate machine learning engineering end to end in any way. But you could be looking at making a pivot to something where you make more money as an applied researcher and do that the data science. I think it's really, it's important to make the distinction of what you want to do in the data science life cycle. Uh, hold on, I want to I want to dig deeper on something there the data, about data engineering uh, having to be something to pivot out of because it might be going away. Uh, but before I get there, but yeah, absolutely uh, agree um, that that you know so you should probably specialize and, and figure out what it is that you want to do. Like the number one mistake that I feel people make when they say I want to get a job in data science is they all want to be data scientists, but it's such a huge spectrum. Right? It's a huge huge spectrum. Um, but but yeah, I'm curious, man. Like so, data engineering. Like you think that's that's possible to get completely automated? Like how would that work? Um, also, shout out to uh, to Kathy Bailey. Good to have you here. If you have a question, please do let us know. Uh, I'll, I'll get you added to the queue. Or if you want to add something to the conversation, just go ahead and use the raise hand icon. I'm happy to uh, to get you into the queue. Uh, but yeah, so data engineering, something to pivot out of. That's something I've never heard. Yeah, I think that. You know, an automation is never like a hundred percent thing. There's no field. I don't think we have many jobs that'll ever be a hundred percent automated, but I look at a field as a good one to get out of if more than 50 or 60% of your job can be automated within the next two to three years. Like that's where I'm starting to look at fields and saying, if I can do half of this with machine learning or with some sort of automation, that's probably a bad field to be in because you're talking about like a reduction in staff and headcount that's so dramatic, you're going to be impacted by it, whether that's you lose your job because you're downsized or your salary prospects are lower than they should be. And so that's where I go. I, I look at data engineering as something that's shrinking. And I know that's dumb to say while the field is expanding. I know like I'm calling it at a really, really stupid time. But when it comes to looking at what the roadmap is for companies like Microsoft, who are offering these types of automation and infrastructure automation services and product lines. Yeah, they're going straight at what data engineers do. It's, it's almost like they intentionally looked at data engineers and goes, yeah, I don't like you guys. I'm going to automate you. It's like somebody got angry at them at some point along the way. And there are just a ton of companies that are trying to data, just automate data engineers. So is so okay, so should we be more worried about auto data engineering instead of auto ML? I think that's what auto ML mostly is. You know, yeah. auto ML, like auto ML is just you know, I, I give a ton of users the ability to use their data better. 
But in order to do that, and this is really the reason why there's so much of a push towards, you know, automating the data engineering side of it, is AutoML is scary and dangerous if your data is bad. Like that's why you need such a smart group of people working in data science right now, because I mean, it's not like the models are that complicated, but that data is trash that's sitting behind most of the models. And so you have to do so much, like, I don't know, it feels like I'm doing some sort of dance every time I use a data set to, to make it work and not do a whole, a whole bunch of irresponsible stuff. And that's kind of the auto ML sweet spot is once you get really clean, reliable data that you can build models with, it doesn't take a whole lot more work to get good analysis out of it. And so being able to use auto ML as a user only works if you can trust your data, then you can kind of, you can take your hands off the wheel a little bit more. So when it comes to jobs in data science, maybe from an abstract way, like tech at large, what types of roles are ones that are kind of not easy to automate or unautomatable? Uh, I, you know, barring the research aspect of it, the research scientist aspect of it, because I know you go there first. Uh, so we take that away from you there. But yeah, what are some of the, the types of roles? Maybe let's start with data science as in general, machine learning in general. Like what are some, some roles that we simply just won't be able to automate? So I broke that question down into basically you're going to be able to automate logical processes, but we're going to have a very hard time automating intelligent processes. And so, you know, when you look at any given job, since they're so different, it's really hard to say this one job will be resilient versus this one won't be. So what I would do is just break your job into the workflow that you do and look at what elements of the workflow are intelligent, requiring you know, a level of synthesis of what you know to novel problems in order to be able to implement that part of the workflow versus what part of your workflow is just variations on a theme where you could, I mean, if you gave it complex enough instructions, you could with a whole bunch of if else statements automate that part of the workflow. You know, like I said, it could be like the world's most complex tree, but you could using a tree automate that part of your workflow. And so that's what I would look at is how much of your work is an intelligent process versus how much of your work is a logical process. And you can just apply that across the board to jobs in general in data science and machine learning. When you look at like what data engineers do, there's a whole lot of logical process work but you look at the architecture side of what they do. No, that's an intelligent process because there's no one size fits all for every business case. And so you have to use a significant amount of synthesis of what you know and understand to look at the problem in a, a way that you can design an optimal solution and architect an optimal solution. So there's kind of that two sides, you know, the two roads in the woods, I guess. You've got your intelligent processes and you've got your logical processes. And yes, Eric, AI is if else statements. Yes. That's what we do for a living. Why did you say that out loud? We're all going to take a pay cut now. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know, man. I was, I was you know, seeing the architecture and uh, uh, just some initial kind of I guess research on the, the doll e2 model like the the text to actual photorealistic images like holy shit dude like 
that's got to be a shit ton of if else statements to go from natural language to photorealistic images that's insane um but yeah speaking of if else statements and like you know the, you're talking about tree branches i saw a diagram on linkedin earlier and it was about uh how slack decides whether a user gets a notification or not and it's this extremely complex decision tree that we take for granted as a user because it's so seamless for us but wow it's a lot of engineering on the on the back end there um then thank you so much kind of kind of straight away from the question that uh that carved the cast so i do want to circle back real quick maybe hear from uh from eric or Russell or maybe kathy if you're, if you're down to uh to chime in here but the question is should i quit my job as a data engineer to upskill and learn what i need to learn to become a data scientist uh russell then uh eric and then if kathy if, if you'd like to chime in let me know um i don't think i have an opinion only because i'm someone who's trying to break into the field so i don't think i'm at liberty to achieve <laughs> an opinion no worries, no worries. Russell, uh, Russell looks frozen, so we'll go to Eric first, and then uh, come back to Russell. All right. So my un my my unqualified opinion is, uh, like you know, it always totally depends. But if I I'm gonna imagine that I was in that spot, that I was a data engineer. Well, where did all these big SQL muscles come from? Um, and then and but I wanted to be a data scientist. I mean, in my current company and probably some other places that I've worked, uh, if I wanted to become a data scientist and I was working as a data engineer, I would hope probably have like in my current position, I would have management support to help me find opportunities to like start working that into my job, you know, stretch assignments or cross training, whatever stuff to help me get those opportunities. And I think that if you're in a place that I mean, if you're in a place that has both data engineer and data science functions, then you might be able to have your cake and eat it too a little bit to help you like make that transition. But of course, if you're not in a place like that, then I guess you either have to decide if you wanna if you wanna try and do the data science data scientist stuff on the side, like we always talk about. It's I mean, it kind of sounds similar. If anybody anybody talking about wanting to break into data science, like how do you do that? Well, how do you break into a different part of data science. It's kind of the same, to me, it's kind of the same playbook because you know there are certain things I really, really like, but I don't do in my daily job. And if I wanted to get a job that would allow me to do that, I would just follow the break into data science path um, to do it. So I guess, I guess that's my answer and answer to that question. Thanks so much, Eric. Russell, let's hear from you. By the way, you guys that are tuning in on YouTube and on LinkedIn, if you guys got questions, please do let me know in the chat, and I'll add your question to the queue. And uh, after this, we'll get to uh, we'll get to Eric's question about NFTs, uh, or somebody had a question about uh, an NFT. Uh, but Russell, let's hear from you. Sure. Okay. Uh, so I break this down into uh, a couple of different layers. So Firstly, if any person wanted to break into data science uh, and they were in a, a non-related profession, say, I don't know, a, you know, kitchen staff or something, I can understand them more wanting to quit their job, go train and go all in on that. Uh, if you're already in data engineering, I think you're kind of, you're more than halfway there, to be honest. Data engineering, data science are inextricably linked. 
uh, and I would defer to, to uh, Vin's previous comments, you know, do some additional training uh, outside of the work hours without giving up the job entirely. That being said, if you're one of the, you know, if you're in a different profession and you feel that your only option is to give up or to quit your job and go all in on the training, be very careful about that. Uh, consider how long it's going to take to do the training. Make sure you've got finances in the bank to support you financially for not working for that amount of time. And not only that, however much you think it's going to cost, make sure you've got three or four times that amount as a contingency because you never know what the job market's going to be like. Even for data science, that's a, you know, it's a really buzzword at the moment. There's so many people going after jobs you may really struggle to get it. So don't assume that as soon as you completed the training, you can walk into a job. Uh, and then circling back around, if you're in data engineering, yeah, you're, you, you are over halfway there. And data engineering is a super interesting sub-segment of the generalistic data science, you know, not the, not the specific machine learning or statistical elements, but super interesting. Uh, so if you're in there and you're not getting the buzz from that, then maybe, yes, you don't want to be in data engineering to look for some of the other substreams. But yeah, I think you probably would be better trying to do something additional uh, around your current work whilst you've got income and then move into something at a, at a, a more protected pace uh, and timeline rather than, you know, pull the rug out from under your own feet to perhaps self-motivate you you, you know, you've got to do something. Try and try and find that motivation without, you know, pulling that rug out. Yeah, hundred percent agree with that. Like, you'd be surprised how much you can accomplish if you just wake up one hour earlier and just carve out half an hour or one hour of TV at the end of the day. Uh, that two hours adds up. Uh, two hours times seven times fifty-two. That's it's a whole lot of learning that you can get done. Uh, so question that Russell had here is about uh, NFTs losing value. Uh, I wish Carlos was here for that. We haven't seen Carlos in ages. Uh, but uh, have you seen that JD Jack Dorsey's first tweet value plummeted nearly 1,000%? Uh, I haven't heard about that, but I'm not surprised. Um, uh, I, I'm not too up on the, on the Web3 or NFTs know things so i know vin you've been doing a lot of research into that so i'll defer to you on that yeah i don't think i i mean what was the value of that tweet in the first place you know what i'm saying you can put technology around whatever you want to but that doesn't make it valuable and i think that's the interesting piece of it is you know you put technology around bitcoin does that make bitcoin valuable well what does it do and if you look at some of the early experimentation in El Salvador, not much. It really flopped. <laughs> in El, I think it was El Salvador that they put it in. And, you know, like the government got behind it. It, it just, the technology behind whoever kind of rolled it out there, bombed. It, it didn't work. People stopped using it. You know, transactions didn't work right. So, you know, is Bitcoin worth anything? Is an NFT worth anything? It's really an interesting question because everything behind those is mostly technology-based. And then on top of that, you have this, you know, it's a piece of art. And if the piece of art or the piece of digital whatever doesn't have any value, then you have to look at the technology and say, does the technology have value? 
And if neither one of those things has value, I guess, you know, what are you buying? And that's, that's what I have to ask every time I look at an NFT is, okay, what am I buying? I mean, I get it. There's a bored ape and I can put it on my Twitter avatar. I mean, cool. Does that ape have value? Like half a million worth of ape? Really? And I think that's, that's what everyone who's buying an NFT has to ask themselves. Same thing with cryptocurrency. You just have to ask yourself, like, what am I actually buying? And is that actually worth anything? Because at the end of the day, if you want to trade that in for something else, someone else has to agree with you. You have to have someone willing to buy it from you for that price. And it seems like, you know, bored apes on boats sell pretty nicely. And, you know, Bitcoin seems like people agree. So, you know, does that hold long-term? I don't know. You know, it's the same thing as any investment. Will it hold long-term? I don't know. Elon Musk might tweet next week something wild and Tesla falls apart. You know, anything could happen when it comes to any sort of investment, no matter what you put behind it. So it's, I think looking at an NFT right now, until you get something where the technology is so compelling to be exceptionally value just on its own, you have to evaluate it like any other investment and say, uh, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's that, uh, uh, the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, and he talks about this, you know, why money exists, right? It's because of this intersubjective reality, the fact that humans can collectively come together, make up a story and all buy into that story, right? Like there shouldn't be anything useful about a paper. Like I can't kill anything with it. I can't eat it. Can't do much with it. But we all buy into it that this thing is worth something. And um, you see that happening with Bitcoin, with the NFTs, things like that. It's these this intersubjective reality type of uh, concept. And maybe people are no longer buying into the uh, subjective reality of NFTs. I do not know. Um, but yeah, is where it is. Any any other insight here? Uh, Eric, you say you got concerned about the Twitter thing. Tell me about that. And by the way, if anybody has questions, please do uh, let me know right here in the chat or on LinkedIn or on YouTube. Happy to uh, take your questions. We also have a cute baby in the room right there like that. Yeah, cute baby. Um, Eric, go for it. Eric's in. Sure. So it's not uh, data. Well, I mean, it will be data related, I guess, but it's not directly data related. I'm just uh, I'm not I'm I'm a little worried about, uh, you know, if Twitter was to go private. Um, I don't know what what that's going to look like, because people talk a lot about people talk about free speech and we should be able to say whatever we want, blah, 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 blah. But like that's because Americans don't understand the Constitution and what the Bill of Rights actually means and crap like that. Um, but uh, yes, you're exactly right, Russell, that if free speech is like when we say we want free speech, what we mean is we want to be jerks <laughs> and uh, and not have like any consequence for it. And and so I'm, I'm you know, who was I talking to recently? That's what I was talking to um, a guy who's an American citizen, but he lives in um, a different country. He has for like more than a decade. And so he's kind of had an outsider's perspective looking in, watching things. And he just kind of talked about like the the degradation of democracy and things like that have happened over the past 15, 20 years or whatever, you know. And I'm I'm young enough that I haven't really been paying attention to very many like very many uh 
like election cycles and even fewer administrations as presidents and when, you know, are sometimes voted for the second term and stuff like that. But I'm just worried about what that will look like um, from a, a free speech perspective, because also somebody made a good point saying, if it was really about just being able to say whatever the heck you wanted, then the other Twitter kind of clone apps, Parler, Gitter, whatever other apps are out there would have done better um, because you can say pretty much whatever you want on those platforms. Um, and yet they didn't take off. So clearly it's not an appetite for just being able to be a free speech person and say whatever you want, whenever you want. So, and I don't like Elon Musk is just enough of a loose cannon that I just have no idea what direction that's going to turn and what, like what blowback would come from it. So I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that. Regardless of your political beliefs, I'm worried about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if it'll actually happen. If the, like the, uh, how does this process have to work if somebody wants to buy a publicly traded company and take it private? Uh, so I saw he like filled out some filings with the SEC, but do like all the shareholders have to agree to being bought out? Like how how does that work? Anybody anybody know? I'm not sure. Yeah, no, no clue here. I know that wasn't it like uh, Vanguard just bought like a larger stake than Elon Musk has. So like, yeah, Elon Musk owns like nine point something percent of the company and they bought like 10.2 or something like that. And so I have no idea what enormously valuable machinations are at play behind the scenes here. Uh, it's way beyond my pay grade and mostly beyond what I care to know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like there's clear, I, I don't know, like, are they on the same team or are they just all thinking, oh, Elon's just like trying to get everybody hyped up. So Twitter buys Twitter, Twitter, like Mark Cuban thinks, you know, that Elon wants to get Twitter really valuable by getting everybody hyped because that's what he does. And then just sell his Twitter stock and make a crap ton of money off it. So that's like a great plan B if he can't just get Twitter for a song, you know, so I don't know. Dan, what are your thoughts on this? In order to be bought, the board has to vote. And I know different companies have like different definitions of board and shareholder rights and all that sort of thing. But I think in this case, what they have to do is get the board to go, yeah, we agree. <clears throat> we vote to sell the company for way less than it was worth um, like eight months ago, because that somehow makes sense now. So you look at the offer and the fact that he said this is a one and final offer and the cost of it makes you kind of wonder, I mean, is that a legitimate, did you expect that to be accepted? And if it was, you know, he said he had enough money at one point to take Tesla private and then he had to walk that back. You know, his offer letter also says, you know, dependent upon financing or funding or something like that. So again, you wonder if, does he actually have, you know, the, the funding to do this, or is this exactly what you're saying where, you know, this is a way for him to back out of something that he probably did on an impulse and maybe regrets, but you can't really speculate what's going on inside of, you know, the kind of mind that Elon Musk has. And so, you know, there's been a whole lot of people who have been trying to speculate about what it means and what he'd do. But I look at it this way, and this is something I'm actually going to publish tomorrow is, you know, if it was about free speech, why wouldn't you just use uh, like Mastodon and build an alternative? And if it was really that awesome, people would leave Twitter, 
and go to your awesome replacement that you could build on a completely open platform and host at a pretty low cost. I mean, for somebody, especially for somebody like Elon Musk, wouldn't cost much, but wouldn't that be the far more efficient way of doing this is to just make your alternative. And if it rocks so much more than Twitter, then, you know, you've represented free speech and everybody's happy and you don't have to worry about shareholders and profitability. It's on an open platform. So who cares? You know, so if it's all about free speech, why wouldn't you just make an alternative instead of forcing your alternative on people who are, you know, if they're not leaving Twitter, they're pretty happy, right? Because you look at alternatives like Parler and Gitter and all those other ones that are out there, they have to moderate people just as much. And they moderate, you know, number one, to stay legally compliant. But on the other hand, they also do moderation because their audience you know, gets angry enough and says, cancel this person. And so they do. It's all about who it is that ends up being the monetized commodity on your platform. If you have influencers on your platform and they get angry, well, you know, if that's enough of your, enough of your revenue stream, then you'll do whatever they ask you to. If it's advertisers and enough advertisers band together, then, well, you're going to do whatever your advertisers want you to. If you're a company like Facebook that, you know, straight up doesn't, you know, honey badger, then you have enough money to be a honey badger and you can put whatever you want to on your platform and you take data from whoever you want to, you know, the EU finds you a billion dollars. Who cares? You made 30 of them last year or, you know, whatever it is that they're making now. So it's, yeah, you know, and that's, I think that's the reality of every platform. And so when we talk about free speech, it's like, that doesn't really even matter once you become an international platform because our definition of free speech china's definition of free speech india's definition of free speech saudi arabia's definition you know we keep going around the world i've named a bunch of different countries and they're all defining free speech differently like there's no consensus you know in any of them what free speech means and what you're able to say and not able to say so you know yeah it's cool to be american centric and i i like my country and i love the way that we built a constitution but we don't have the right to impose that constitution through companies on other countries so it, you know there's all of these different implications of elon taking twitter private but at the same time like will any of those you know it, it's awesome to want things my dad used to tell me that he's like you know it's good to want things but it doesn't mean you're going to get them It'd be great to think about this platform as a bastion of free speech, but can you actually do that? It's an interesting point. Uh, I didn't think about that. Use use a business to kind of impose your will on other countries. Uh, That's very, very interesting and something to to digest. Uh, Appreciate that. Uh, There's questions coming in here on LinkedIn. One from Patrice. Johnson Patrice says, NFTs, metal blocks.co allows you to buy virtual versions of each tract of land in San Francisco. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, hopefully it doesn't cost as much as the actual tract of land. Um, and Patrice is also asking, where do you see information architecture in the work that you do? Uh, it's a very interesting question. I'm not sure I know what information architecture is. Uh, is anybody familiar with this term that wants to jump in, talk about it? I was Googling it right now. I'll, I'll go to my go-to person, Vin, because he knows more than all of us combined. 
pretty much. <laughs> what do you do? You, uh, information architecture. Like you're talking about architecture earlier, then like you know what information architecture is. How does this fit into the work that data scientist does? Uh, and I've got to Google this term myself. If it's an information sciences term, I kind of understand where it's coming from, but I mean, it's a, it's a pretty open question. I could spend 20 minutes answering it. So I'm going to avoid doing that because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't answer the actual question that Patrice was asking. So if, if she can, you know, I don't know, narrow it down a little bit to help me understand a little bit deeper. So just Google in term, it says that information architecture is the structural design of shared information environments, the art and science of organizing and labeling websites, intranets, online communities, and software. Uh, so it seems like it's a way to classify things and organize. Thought, yeah, that's what I thought she was asking. And it's, oh, that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like a crazy, that's, that's a massive question. It's a good one, but it's a massive question. Uh, Patrice, I think you were here last week and I think you have the li link. So if you want to jump in, please go ahead and let me know. I'll be free, free to jump in. Uh, Shuwebe in the building. Good to see you here, man. I know you're usually in the chat on LinkedIn, so it's good to have you here. Uh, you got a question, so go for it. Yeah, thank you, Harpreet. Um, I've been meaning to come for some time, obviously, because of, I actually live in London, as you can tell by my accent. So it's around 11, pretty late, but I've found the time today to just uh, welcome myself and try and get some information up. But I um, just want to say a big thanks to like your service you, you provided for the last two years with regards to data science. I've learned a huge amount. So it's a really big service and um, just want to thank you again for that. In terms of my question, um, so I recently just started a role within data science recently. I'm a month in and I was wondering just from your side, if you have any advice going into like the three to six month mark, how you would navigate or if you've actually been on a managing side, um, how would you like to see the subordinate of your team do well in those six months? Do you have any advice on that? Yeah, let's hear from, uh, from Eric on this. I think Eric uh, would have some good perspective here. So Eric Sims, go for it. Yeah, so... Let's see here. I started my job uh, last June. So it's been like what, eight, eight, eight or nine months, something like that. And so my manager, when I very first started said, there are three things I want you to focus on in your first like 30 to 90 days. The first thing is know where the data is. Uh, <clears throat> like be able to, I'm just making notes, making a couple notes here so I don't forget. There we go. So know where the data is. Like if you're going to go into the data warehouse, like do you know the fact tables? Do you understand how they, how dimensions work and, and connect um, everything together? It's like, okay, I can, I can do that. I got to find stuff. Um, second relationships. Like, are you meeting people? Do you know people after 90 days? Have you established relationships? Do they trust you? Will they ask you if they have a question? Do they think that you know what you're talking about? Slash, are they, you know, just like, do you have that, that good working relationship with people? And I'll tell you, I have probably invested in that piece more than like anything else. And it like, I, I don't, I think it's probably the most valuable is the relationships portion because don't know where to find something. Your relationships can help you find it. 
don't understand how something works, the people can help you find it. Um, so, you know, it's like this sort of cheesy thing to be like, oh, people are the most important. Well, yeah, they are because they made the system. And so if you don't know the system, the people can help you. Um, and then the last, the third one was understanding the levers that we can pull to affect our KPIs. So like, for example, like I work with a lot of marketing data and so understanding, well, if we are coming up short on say um, lead volume for the month or sales volume or whatever, which of our paid channels can we impact or, you know, or which of our paid channels have the greatest impact or could we use to, you know, drive that volume most easily. And so like, now I understand that better than I understood on day one, obviously, because I didn't know anything. So like focusing on those three things is like, where's the data, who are the people and what relationships do you have? And then what levers can we pull to drive KPIs or the most important things? Excellent, so, thank you. Uh, Fiance, Eric. Russell or, or, or Vin or Eric Gitonga, if you wanna chime in too, let me know. Uh, you're more than welcome to jump, jump on. Uh, Russell, any, any input here? I think Russell might be frozen. Vin, what about you? No, I'm I'm here, but uh, Zoom crashed on me, so I've just come uh, back and caught caught the last bit of that. So I, I missed the first part of the question. Could you repeat it for me? Yeah, sure. So, um, in regards to the situation, I'm a month in in that data say data science role. I don't know if it's helpful at first to show the industry or domain. So the industry is like financial regulation. If that helps. So one of the things that I wanted to know was um, now I'm at the one month mark, how could I make it better or easier, the pathway for me in the next three or six months? Or if you find it easier as a manager, let's say, if you're, um, if you're looking after a, lot of, a big data science team, what would you want to see um, from, the, from the subordinates, like your employees within a data science team? Okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. And I, I caught the relationships comment um, from some others, and I, I would echo that. Absolutely, make relationships, um, know the team, create free movement of knowledge, knowledge sharing between everyone and the team. Beyond that, really get to know the data, um, understand the data, uh, just, you know, live and breathe the data so that if you see something odd in a data field, even though you're not seeing the the analysis output, you maybe will be able to pick up some odd occurrences in the data at the raw level, and then follow those those rabbit holes to the conclusion. Um, and yeah, be be open and positive with everyone, even if it means making yourself more vulnerable by identifying something that you might think being a weakness. Um, and I would say an awful lot of people say this on LinkedIn, but, you know, identifying weakness and owning up to a weakness is that can actually be a strength, you know, providing it's not something that's completely, you know, uh, antithetic to the work that you're doing. If you say, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm as strong as I'd like to be with this one element. I'd like to be, you guys have obviously been here a lot longer. What would you be doing in this instance? You know, my, my gut feeling is telling me to go down this way, but, you know, I'm here to do data science work. I don't want to rely on my gut feeling. I want to learn better ways to do this. And uh, yeah, see how that, that type of open um, uh, open transition of information is is accepted in the wider team. And if there are 
if they're a proactive open team, I think they'll respond well to it. Russell, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm gonna go to Vin next. Before I do, I just want to kind of give, give my you know little, little bits of advice here. Uh, dude, I would just get as curious as you possibly can about the business, how it works, how they make money, who their customers are, who their competitors are, and get ultimately uh, become a fanboy of, of the business, right? Because your success isn't going to come from you knowing how to write the most efficient SQL queries or write the most amazing algorithms, right? Like your success is going to be predicated on, okay, can the things that you do and the things you spend time on actually make money for the business, either make money, save money, or reduce costs or reduce risks, right? So just get super, super curious about the business, about how it works, about how they make money, about how they lose money. And also just figure out what it is that your boss gets promoted on, right? Like what's, what's your boss? Like, what are his metrics? Dude, like when it comes bonus time or hers or them's, like, I'm just, yeah. when it comes time, like what are their metrics? Like, how are they evaluated? Like figure that out. And then also, I don't know if the company operates on OKRs or, or whatever, but really take those to heart, understand those, right? Um, that, that goes along with kind of understanding the business as well. But uh, month in, after you've met the people, after you've gotten familiar with the datascape and, and all that stuff, now it's time to just go in on the business. You know, if it's a publicly traded company, read the CEO's, you know, letters to their shareholders. If it's a privately held company, see if you can find any type of, you know, annual report, quarterly report, things like that. Because I think that's what's ultimately going to drive the most success. Um, uh, then yeah pretty much everything Herpreet said and then before that everything Russell said and before that everything Eric said like I would just agree kind of across the board those are all great pieces of advice the only thing I'd add is something that worked for me when I was first starting out at a new company not necessarily like expected in your first six months but it helped set me up for some success is I figured out what the team hated doing and I tried to figure out how much of that I could start doing myself because that sort of work is, you know, no one wants to do it. So they're all bad at it. And if you start taking it on at an early stage, yeah, it's not going to be the most glamorous work, but it's going to get you like the most credibility as fast as possible because you're contributing in a really obvious way by taking pain away. And same thing with external group. You know, we talked about relationships but find out what team the team that you're on has the hardest time interfacing with. And you're going to realize that because you are new, you have like this magic glow on you where you're part of the team, but you're not really part of the team yet. And so you can go to that other group as like this brand new person who can talk to them without all the baggage that comes with the reason why that relationship wasn't awesome. And so you might be able to be the conduit between two teams that have had a hard time interfacing with each other just by being new. And so those are kind of the two yeah. things you can do when you're new that will earn you, like I said, the most, um, it's not a huge impact, but it's the most obvious impact because those are two big things that the team hates. They're painful. Great. Thank you very much, Finn. Thank you very much. And everything that I said, I learned from Ben. So uh, <laughs> that's probably why he, yeah, likes what I said. Um, 
any other uh, feedback on that? Um, uh, any, any other tips, words of advice for Shwe? Let me know. Uh, shout out to everybody else that just joined the room. Uh, Coast Club's in the building. Patrice is here. Patrice, I think, might be uh, here to double click on the uh, information architecture uh, question that you're asking. Shout out to Dare George. Dare, what's going on? Uh, and uh, I think that's Nabrit Gill in the room. Uh, what's up, everyone? A uh, couple of things coming in here on LinkedIn. Uh, Charlie Littleton, uh, who's a data and analytics manager at Procter & Gamble, says that uh, for, as a tip, just stay humble and ask for help when you need it. I love that advice. Thank you so much, Charlie. Um, if you want to join us in the room, Charlie, let me know. I'll send you a link. Uh, should I go ahead? Let me know if you have any like, follow-up questions or, or, or anything. Um, I think someone called Kathy was saying, how am I liking everything so far? So I don't know if this is a space to just comment on that. Yeah, yeah go for it. Yeah, go for it. How are you liking your uh, first month on the job? It's your first job? Yeah. Um, no, so I think um, when you first started, your podcasting, I mean, this um, session, sorry, is happy hours. I was in marketing at the time. So, and then after that, uh, one year after that, I did a master's pretty much and I completed that. And um, in the last three months or so, I did, I just found this job. It's pretty cool. It's like different domain from marketing to the, um, uh, what do you call it? A financial regulation. But the funniest thing I'd like to say is um, I, I didn't think I'd actually get there. But, uh, but when I spoke to my boss and the reason why he said he, like my CV is basically I worked with Google Analytics data a lot. So I worked in the marketing domain before. And I think that kind of just goes to show like, even if you're not within that domain, you shouldn't be discouraged from it. You should probably just apply anyway, because you might have, you might have something attractive or meaningful to kind of provide. So that's kind of one thing I would say as well, if people uh, here are struggling in that sort of way, I mean, just go for it. If you have, projects or if you have experience and make use of it I guess and then more so um, in terms of the first month with what uh, Kathy said um, it's quite interesting because I, I think one thing I was kind of expecting was uh, even though it's data science um, I thought there would be a lot of querying with SQL so I kind of did prepare a bit more on SQL too much when that actually wasn't the case Ironically, it was more um, software engineering, and this is something I'm still trying to build. I'm not the biggest software engineering geek or whatever. I still need to improve, but um, definitely um, they say that things that are edge of your scope, you learn the fastest. And so um, that's one thing that definitely stood out the most is just like what my manager, he's been there for like five, six years, He's, he's, he's really, really good at like Python engineering and coding. And it's like, he, but he, he nevertheless, he reassured me, like, uh, I've been here for five years. There's no need to compare. And so uh, just learning from people like that, I'm kind of happy with. But then other things like um, a CRM, um, they're being involved in that. And so that's one of the projects I'm kind of doing is just, um, even though it's not pure data science, like it's not coding, it's just more about data literacy for the other team. Like I think Vin or somebody else said it is the, the department that had some of the other the most um, pain points. Um, they just need a bit more consulting from us. Uh, we're like, um, for context, the department is like 60 people and then five of us are like a data science unit. And so we're helping out that, um, that specific 
um, team. That's like 10 of them, but they're not really good at data literacy. They find it hard to do data visualization. And so we're just coming in and being the heroes really and just documenting and, and making sure that whatever project requirements they have for that CRM um, is coming to fruition because um, the first solution that my boss said was right, we might need to do Tableau, but after the meeting when that wasn't the case, what it was is just using a legacy CRM system and just reworking the reports they already have. So um, it's definitely a good learning process and it's good problems. And uh, it, sometimes it's not always like Python programming. It's also like what legacy systems they have and just using your knowledge as much as possible. So I think, I hope I kind of gave a good gist of what I was doing and what kind of you can learn from it, I guess. Kathy, any other follow-up questions about the uh, first month on the job? Uh, no, thanks for sharing that insight. I'm always curious about everyone's journey and, you know, you sharing, um, you know, that, you know, even though you're, you might be underqualified, just shoot your shot. So that's what I kind of started doing since last week. Um, you mm. know, I have some SQL, some Python, some Tableau under my belt. I'm going to finish my master of science in data analytics this summer. And it's got some data science techniques and elements incorporated. So I'm just trying to see where the, the, you know, where it lands. Yeah. I think, I think you're ready to hit the ground running. Just remember like there's more in data science than just the job title data scientist, right? There's obviously data analyst, but there's analytics engineer that might be something that you might be interested in product analytics. Uh, insights analyst is another thing I've seen. So there's all these like like jobs that don't have the title data scientist. But when you look at it, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's like work I would enjoy doing, right? Like if, if I like doing this type of things and even though it doesn't have that title, like I would, you know, still enjoy that job. So when you do search for jobs, that you know, maybe look for it. If you do a search on LinkedIn, do search on skills uh, rather than on actual job titles. Um, Oh, not I actually anything. never thought about that. Thanks for that. Yeah. I'll add that to my little notes. Yeah, not not everything's about having a job title as a data scientist. I used to have a job title as a data scientist. Then I was a lead data scientist. And now I'm not even a data scientist anymore. I'm in marketing now, but a highly technical, highly high leverage type of marketing. Uh, I make data scientist jobs easier by helping them with... Uh, educational materials and things like that. It's awesome. Uh, sure, thanks so much uh, for coming. Thanks for your question, Patrice. Thanks so much for the follow-up question. Um, let's, uh, let's circle back now that Patrice is here because um, I think Russell um, had a bit of insight on the information architecture thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So I was saying I, I heard some of that before Zoom crashed to me. So I'm not sure if anybody else answered it. But uh, the the sector I work in is half data and half um, program, project management, project controls, PMO, etc. So we have a lot of different, should we call them work streams of information, and information and data are kind of almost two two sides of the same coin. Okay, so if you were to classify information into um, course categories such as uh, cost or financial information, time or schedule information, uh, quality information, those types of things, then aim to productionize and stabilize those streams of information. So you've got information pipelines, as it were, and then transition those information pipelines to data pipelines, and they can then come into a data model. 
So you'll end up with both a data model and an information model, and they should gel 100%. And if they don't, you know you've got an issue and you either have to look at resolving something in the data model or resolving something in the information model. And that could be in the way that you're um, productionizing and analyzing the information model itself, or it could be in the information pipelines. Very often it's the information pipelines because data input quality is just, it's the biggest challenge I think that affects everybody in data. Um, but information also, as I've said, because information and data are, are, are very, very much connected. So, so that was my that was my comment. So, Patrice, I don't know if that if, if that That's was the way you were so looking helpful. at information architecture. So, yeah. So, I I have um, come across information architecture as this new field that I'm really interested in, and maybe have been doing in some ways under other titles and names. Um, but my challenge is, I run into people who are not in UX, and they think they have an understanding from hearing information architecture of what that is, but then they hear me say what I am interested in, and then they're like, oh, I was thinking of a different information architecture. So I'm now I really want to know what the other things people mean when they say information architecture are. And I think you just described that from a, um, a very, yeah, it, it was helpful to hear like, oh, this is a, this is a, a thing that people, um, might be hearing when I say information architecture that might be different from what I'm experienced or it might be the same in some ways, but it is um, at least inside of UX a, a, a not, or it's not that it's not defined, it's defined by too many people in too many ways for there to be one, um, maybe for there to be one easily shareable definition and it overlaps with a lot of other things. Um, so yeah, any instances of information architecture that people are coming across or using or um, encountering in their work. I'm interested in hearing how that shows up. Crickets. Uh, Russell, anything to add there or Navi, anything to add there or anybody? Yeah. Can, yeah. All right. I, I'm, sorry, I'm just... oh, sorry, go ahead, Russell. No, I, I was just going to say, I've seen the links that you've put in there, Patrice, so I'm going to check those out. So, Ben, uh, go ahead, please. Yeah, you. the reason why everyone has a different uh, definition of information architecture is because you've hit on, like, the largest... It, there's an entire field that is that deals with different ways to architect information and to go from having um, data to having something that's usable and you start going almost immediately to relationships between data and you go from your categorical taxonomies you move one and that's sort of the hierarchy and the structure you go one step above that and now you have ontologies which define the relationships between objects or concepts or, or you know really anything that's in information and ontologies contain sort of a crude domain knowledge. And that's why you're getting so many different interpretations of this is because you ask anyone from like 15 different fields and you will get, like you can ask a biologist and they're going to give you a different answer. They're gonna start talking about like hardcore ontologies that they build out to classify different types of knowledge and different types of biologists will define it. It's, it's crazy how big the topic is so when you say information architecture, I think I would always put like an asterisk after it 
And, you know, in parentheses, put exactly what segment that you're talking about and to what extent. That, that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other input on this topic? Let me know. Yes, I'll stump the cheese. Yeah, relation. Yeah, I think the the categories you make, the relationships you make, the things you put inside of other things, and the connections that you make to them, are that I yeah I, I guess that's a basis for user experience in terms of someone making their way through a product, but it's also the basis for how people can access or can't access information in a database, or I don't know, maybe there's like, maybe it's a basis for like 10 more or a hundred more things that different fields are building. Maybe in any field where you're building something, um, the the way people can get to what's available there could be considered, how, how it's set up could be considered information architecture. Ah, behavioral ontologies, interesting. Yeah, this is all stuff that goes way over my head. Uh, these, like you guys are talking about Ontology, ontology, well, at least the way I learned it was just the <laughs> the thingness of a thing. Is it a thing or not? Um, if it if it's become a thing, then it's it has an ontology or is an ontology. I'm not sure which one would be correct there. But, so I guess the way people do things would be a behavioral ontology by Vince definition there. Well, what um, what you're building out is an ontology of someone interacting with whatever it is that, that you've built out. And so that's a behavioral ontology because you're not interested in what it is that they, you know, classify it as or segment it as you're trying to segment by behavior and you're trying to get a particular type of reaction out of them. You're trying to fit into a particular paradigm. So you're trying to get a response from them by providing something, some particular type of experience. And so you're building behavioral ontologies and, that's going to end up being a segmentation because you can serve the same thing to two different people. And if they have different behavioral ontologies, they'll react differently. So, and I think that's what you're trying to get at with UX is how to figure, to figure out how to know what to give someone in order for them to respond to the way that you want them to, to your particular design element or design aspect. At least that's what I'm guessing that you're yeah, using the, be the behavioral ontology to do. Yeah, because like a, I guess one of the big challenges is a lot of a lot of products or even things that are I, I think this happens in real life too, right? People they build a it happens in the built environment about maybe more online because people like it's there, but people don't know how to find it or don't know what it's called or don't know how to get to yeah. it. And so the no, that's actually different. That's just a knowledge because you're doing a search and you have to figure out for that person's ontology what does that search mean. You know, because mm -hmm. if you do a fancy restaurant, depending upon your ontology, that can mean a ton of different things. And so, no, that's more of a traditional ontology. It's trying to figure out how that person connects objects together. So it's just concepts. And so if I say fancy restaurant, for me, that might mean a really nice Italian restaurant. For somebody else, that might mean a steakhouse. For somebody else, that's sushi. 
for somebody, you know, and it, it could be that your ontology connects fancy with the type of food, or it could be that your ontology connects fancy with the price point, or it could be that you have some combination of environmental factors, something that you look at in a fancy restaurant. That's and so that's friends. really what you're, yeah, that's the, that's a very traditional ontology. Yeah, I think it's also, so Abby Covert um, wrote a book in which she made the case for, this is something that everybody does, like, and any, I know any writer does this, right? So say you write a book, you have to decide what are the chapters going to be called? Where are you going to segment them? How are you, are you using chronological order? Are you making your own order that makes sense because of the way you, of the things that happened in the story or some other way that makes more sense to organize them than to tell them in the order that they happened? So I think it's like a, uh, I think she would say information architecture is the way you organize things so that people can make sense of them um, very, in, the, in a very, very, very broad way. Um, uh, but I, I think if I, I, I'm starting to appreciate just how, like I knew there was something technical that had information architecture in it. Like the people who build, uh, uh, I don't know, the basis for, I don't know, company computer systems or, or whatever else is getting built out there. Um, but I think maybe way beyond that, there's many fields that have a, um, a, a way they look at this and it may not even be called information architecture. They may not think of it as that, but it's, I guess it's an organizing, everything has an, a system of organization in some respect. Yeah, you can scare even hardcore scientists like postdoc with the word ontology and creation of ontology. You can literally scare an entire room of scientists out where they will jump out and leave. And <laughs> someone who can build an ontology is seen as like Iron Man or you know Wonder Woman. You, you are legitimately that level if you can build an ontology in a scientific domain. It's, it's like the top of the food chain in science. Medical informatics. Yeah, I, did a, I did a quick search on Google, like information architecture with data science. And uh, it seems like there's a lot of research and, and uh, just topics and, and articles written on data architecture versus information architecture. That might be something worth looking into um, huh. to see kind of that intersection and that difference. Oh, yeah, you know, was it was it here last week? I feel there's this, there's this uh, distinction that people make between data and information in different ways too that I think is kind of fascinating. Um, uh, a um, wisdom hierarchy, I think it is. Data, like, you know, there's the raw data, the information, so on and so forth, goes on top of each other. Um, great questions. Let me know if you guys have any other questions. Shout out to Mark Freeman in the building. Uh, what's going on? Uh, there's a highly specific question here from Krishanu about shop and cat boost. And uh, he's asking about base value. So let me ask you this, let me flip the question. Krishanu, how have you approached trying to find the answer to this? Um, and so, what, um, yeah. So I was explaining this to my manager who uh, does, does not have any idea about SHAP. So when I was explaining uh, the whole SHAP value uh, to him, when I was explaining the force plot, uh, I saw that uh, the, there is something called as base value. 
anything uh, and uh, can I just project my screen? It would be just easier for everyone to see. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. Okay, I'm, I'm not allowed to share my screen. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it might be system preferences on your end because people should be able to share screen. Okay. Um, but pr pretty much your question is on shap.forceplot. And yeah. we're trying to find out what the base value represents. So if anybody has insight on that, this is uh, we're sure that we need him because uh, he's, he's, he's the man for this. But yeah, go for it, Kishan, go ahead and expand on that. Yeah, anything that, so uh, base value, uh, like uh, in one of the articles I read was, it represents the average probability for, uh, if you're doing a binary classification, it's the average probability of the entire training set that it might be either zero or one. It, uh, I, I see it as that uh, threshold or that splitting point, uh, but I was just not sure because I, I, when uh, I explained this to my uh, supervisors in my company, uh, I saw myself stammering. So I just wanted to cross check. Uh, and uh, and this, uh, this question kind of popped in my mind. So is it like, is it like just, uh, is it anything that's on uh, the left-hand side would be classified as zero or the right-hand side of the base value that would be classified as one? Is it like the threshold or how, how is it? That's my question. Uh, if anybody has any input here, definitely feel free to chime in. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't, don't have any to add there. I'm just curious, are your uh, people that you're reporting to, are they data scientists themselves? Or are they just business people? Sorry, yeah, this is like the, uh, yeah, it's uh, the business people and with a little bit knowledge on data science. So I, uh, I found myself uh, uh, like a little confused myself when I was just trying to explain that plot. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what are you trying to solve for? What uh, are you trying to solve for? So I was trying to solve whether, uh, let's say, an app, uh, an employee is uh, quitting the company or not quitting the company. What is the average probability? So the uh, base value basically represents the average probability uh, of uh, employee quitting the company. Let's say it is 3.362. So on a scale, if you can imagine anything that uh, is on the left-hand side of 3.362 would, uh, how would you see it? If I, after I built the model now, I'm just trying to you know, test it out on a uh, on a test set. I take out one row from the test set and I uh, apply my model into it. The model says uh, it is like a little bit on the left side of 3.362. Does that mean, uh, it kind of indicates that probably let's say it's uh, the employees unlikely to reach, uh, leave the company. If it is on the right side, it is probably um, 
more likely to leave the company. So is uh, 3.36 to the split point or what? Uh, Mark, I see your uh, hand is up. If you want to go yeah, first, so, then Russell so after the, that. What you said? I said, uh, Mark, go ahead and explain, then Russell after that, because he's got some comments in the chat. Perfect. Um, so this is going to be on the model side of it. I'm just, from what I'm hearing, I guess, like, the pain point I'm hearing is, you know, you, you shared this information from this analysis you did um, with business stakeholders and just did not stick with them, right? Is that is that correct? uh no uh they asked me what what was the they asked me what i could not properly like i was myself not sure about uh i was trying to explain it to my colleague and i was myself not very sure about what the base value really represents in the scale okay so my my, my advice is going to be around adapting kind of this technical knowledge to business stakeholders but based on what you clarify it doesn't seem like a real problem so I'm gonna stay silent then because I don't think what I was gonna say is gonna help then. Uh, Russell, I see you got some comments here in the chat. Uh, Russell might be a bit frozen. Yeah, no, no, I'm on. I'm, I'm, my, my laptop's just hanging a little. Yeah, so this just seems to me like a, it, it's, it's normalizing an analog proposition to a digital return. So whatever metrics are being utilized to determine the probability of a worker leaving. Uh, and um, for context, I'd say, I don't know, perhaps you would look at their average salary, uh, their uh, appraisal scores, their um, you know, uh, annual leave percentage, uh, and, and any number of factors that are using or being used to determine their score. And you've mentioned a 3.62 or something similar as the threshold value. So if they're less than 3.62, they're unlikely to leave or less likely to leave. And if they're over that, they're more likely to leave. So there's going to be a strength or a weighting to that. So basically, you want to assume that your 3.62 is your zero bed. And anything that's less than that means they're likely to leave. And anything that's more than that means they're less likely or, or vice versa, depending how the calculation is. So it seems to me that they're asking you to just predict any worker are they likely to leave within a period of time or not? And they're not worried about the strength of return. So you can get someone that's like at a zero, which is like really quite far away from the 3.62 datum. Or you can get someone that's 100, which is way more in the other direction, whichever way this is done. And it sounds like they don't want to know that. They just want to have a, a rough calculation of the overall field of workforce, how many people are likely to leave within a, a specific time frame and how many people are likely not to leave within a specific time frame. So I'd classify this as simply normalizing an analog return to a, to a digital, yes or no. And I think it's as simple as that. I like that a lot. Thank you very much, Russell. Uh, so Russell knows his shop values uh, and, and what they mean. So Krishanu, there you go. It'll be there uh, recorded on YouTube right after this if you need to run that back go to the YouTube channel and uh, and just kind of rewind it and you can, you can take notes. Uh, all right, let's go and see if there's any other questions or comments going on uh, in the chats anywhere. I don't see anything coming into the chat here. I don't see, oh wait, uh, Derek George has a question. Uh, yes. Is he still here? Yes, yeah. I'm here. 
Go for it. All right, thank you. Yes, um, okay, I, I've got two questions. First is, um, um, if you are in a training space, how, how do you uh, prepare your curriculum so that it reflects what is uh, currently obtainable in the industry? Um, uh, and of course, it is always, the industry is always changing and all of that. So how, how do you uh, set it in such a way that it's also uh, dynamically uh, changing or reflecting what is currently obtainable in the market? That's the first question. The second is that um, we're trying to reach some firms and companies to hear their data story, right? So uh, how would you, uh, I mean, data story, uh, for a compilation, we try to compile this uh, so that we can, um, you know, push it out there for probably people to learn from and all of that and probably tell their story. So uh, do you think it's something they will want to share? And um, if you had to approach them, how will you go about that? So those are my two questions. Second, the first question, for, uh, second, the first question first, and then We'll circle back to the second one. So first question was, if you're in the tech training space as a yes. trainer in data science, how do you make sure that the curricul cur curriculum yes. you create reflects what's going on in the industry? It's uh, a good question. Mark, you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, I can definitely take a stab at that. I think a, a key thing is there's, there's passive ways of doing that, and then there's active ways. Um, a passive way is just, you know, being on LinkedIn, following the correct people, um, reading newsletters, reading the current books coming out, reading the various research papers um, that you can do. And I say passive because, you know, actively have to read it, but, you know, you don't have to identify people in the sense of like getting time with them to talk um, over a while, over a certain amount of time, you start building a network. And you can start seeing what people are currently implementing in production. So another key thing to think about is like what's being talked about maybe in academia, so those papers, and then what's actually being implemented within companies. Um, and so building up a network and talking to people, learning about their tech stack, learning about what they're implementing, more importantly, what are the problems they're facing and problems they're trying to solve. That's how you kind of get more into the uh, contextualizing your, your content um, for what you're doing. And it's hard. I think it's, it's kind of hard in our space because our space moves really fast. I mean, you have the basic stuff so that that's probably not going to move around. So like statistics and training tests, right? But going to the more kind of like modern data stack, what's that? Like that's constantly changing almost every quarter, right? Um, and so being, being aware of who are kind of like the thought leaders uh, in that space or the companies in that space. So for example, Harpreet got this really great uh, post about what was it, Feather for LinkedIn coming out with their open sourcing their packages. So being aware of things like that, um, that's kind of like how you stay on top and make sure that it's really um, still industry standard. Um, I think it just requires you just being embedded within the industry. And more importantly is by be you being embedded in the industry, you're essentially, that's like a service in itself, being aware of that. And that's the value you bring to companies when you do um, your courses and how you can differentiate yourself. is like, hey, I'm not just putting out random stuff. I'm embedded in the community. I'm embedded in the industry. I know what's really happening right now. I can adapt accordingly. But I'm curious what others have to say. Let's hear from Patrice. Patrice actually had um, something uh, along the similar uh, lines as what you're saying, Mark. 
Oh, just um, one thing that I've experienced as a student is the instructors will invite people who are data scientists or who are um, working on whatever the, the content of the day is to come in and talk about a problem or talk about um, uh, a, a slice of the industry that they know. And that's one way to just, I think that's a very effective way to take a day of the life of the industry and um, insert it right into the course. And it's also, um, I think it's, it's possible to find people in industry who wanna make time to do that because they maybe have been away from schools and instruction for a while and they wanna, um, they wanna see what you're doing in the classroom as well. Um, I don't think I have much more to add on that. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick some people I follow in like LinkedIn in the in the chat. Um, but yeah, that's it. Ben, uh, any input there? As far as keeping classes and like the content relevant to the industry, yeah, it, it's really just about having practitioners and people who are building the tools that are being used in the industry because having those people you're going to get kind of a diverse background and perspective whereas if you have a practitioner who's been working at company one for three years and company two for two years you know it's going to be fairly granular but if you're talking about trying to get a broader perspective of the industry yeah bring people in who are building tools because they're having to talk to a bunch of other companies and get those companies to adopt their stuff so they understand a broader range of workflows and they'll probably be able to interject. I mean, because they're really, really granular and really applied, you know, they're, they're building a tool. And if their tool doesn't work the way that the people that they're trying to sell it to do, you know, there's no way it's going to be adopted. So you're going to get a good perspective, good realistic perspective of how things work. If you talk to like a data scientist or somebody that's architecting those, those types of packages or, or, those types of products, excuse me. Any other input? Um, maybe anything to add there or? Uh, I just want to quickly add, yeah. um, I, I love Ben's point talking to like vendors who like actually really think about it because they're talking about that go-to-market strategy all the time. And they talk to like hundreds and hundreds of customers. Um, I put in the chat, uh, VCs, are actually really great to, to talk to because they're often evaluating and doing due diligence on many startups who are coming up. And to get to the VC level, not like seed investing, but VC, they have to validate a market need and actually have customers. And so they're seeing early trends way before um, a lot of people are. And so there's some people, I think there's some medium people who are, um, who are VCs who run blogs based on what they're, they're seeing from their deal flow. Medium like a medium blog, blogs. Yeah, like a medium blog. I I I'm, I think one of them her name is Anastasia. I'm I'm blanking on it. Um, but she she she's a VC or works in VCs. Yeah. Um, and she basically talks about like up and coming things in data. Yeah. Nice. Um, and and something that you know nobody else here said, but I would I would again just go back to the tried and true things that are always going to be true in the data science field. Uh, and that's just teaching basics, like, you know, make sure you teach people basic fundamentals of data literacy, SQL, and essence of, of how to communicate data to an audience 
using storytelling and obviously how to write some code. Any follow-up questions on that first question there, George, before we uh, go into your second question there? Okay, you want me to, to ask the second question now? Oh, well, if you have any follow-up questions on that first question, now's the time oh, to no. ask your Awesome. No, the responses have they've been so brilliant. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone. Really appreciate that. We're able to pick so, so, so many uh, points that uh, we really be happy. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, so um, I'm okay with the first question. If you want me to go to the second question, I can do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, thank you. So we're trying to uh, do a compilation, a compilation of uh, basic stories, complaints, um, more uh, like uh, yeah, case studies. I mean, uh, using them for case studies and all of that. So the question is, how how, how would you have pushed them for their stories, for their data stories? How they are making exports and um, uh, making impacts through data, and also, um, do you think it's something that we want to share? Okay, so if I can uh, just make sure I understand the question is, you, you're trying to communicate, try to come up with a bunch of case studies to kind of talk about how companies have extracted value from their data and you want to figure out how should you approach companies to see if they're willing to talk to you and share their stories. Yes, I share their stories, okay. yes. So uh, uh, definitely I'll flip this over to anyone in the chat that has something to add there, but I would say, you know, maybe first start by just looking and seeing what people have written on like their engineering blogs, right? So Mark mentioned how I posted something about LinkedIn engineering, right? Um, so try to go to companies' blogs and see if you can pull stories from there um, that, you know, if you can't, if you can't get anybody to, to disclose how they, you know, how they made the sausage, so to speak, that's one option. Um, but let's turn it over to Mark. And then from there, uh, whoever else wants to jump in, let me know. Um, so I really loved your point regarding just like pulling what's freely available online. Um, I think the one question you ask yourself is, you know, when you get this collection of case studies, what's the goal of that? Are you trying to create like a free resource? Are you trying to create a product that you're selling? Um, that changes the dynamic of the relationship because if you're trying to create a free resource, you know, they may be interested. They may see that as like, oh, it's a marketing opportunity. People will be aware of our service, right? But if you're doing a paid service then you might want to get into contracting, like who owns what uh, regarding kind of like the copy and things like that. So it can get a little tricky in that sense. Um, regarding approaching them is, you know, I would avoid kind of like, hey, you'll get exposure. Um, especially when you're a company, like you don't need exposure. You need, you need to pay the bills and, uh, you know, uh, uh, fulfill your fiduciary duty and some random person asking for, for something of nothing return. Right. That's, that's not a very, um, that's not very appetizing. I'm trying to blank on the word, but that's not a very appealing kind of proposition. And so you have to identify what leverage point that you have, what value can you bring to people you approach? um through your your services so you may be like hey we're building these case studies because our community i'm just brainstorming right now but we're building these case studies for this community that we've built we built there are a whole bunch of data practitioners that we believe is your target market you know we would like to collaborate see how we can share kind of stories that can benefit both of us right 
And so the, the conversation is really targeted towards, um, you know, building, uh, building value for, for both sides. Um, and so I would highly, highly recommend not approaching it where like, what can you do for us? But more so think about how can you can cultivate value for everyone involved? And that may require financial means as well to get those case studies. Then let's, let's uh, hear from, from you. And if anybody else wants to jump in here, please uh, go ahead and feel free to use the raise hand uh, icon and I'll be sure to call on you. Yeah, I think the hardest thing that you can get out of a company is their case studies because most of them are pretty guarded about them. <laughs> a lot of times you have intellectual property tied up into a case study. Just as a consultant, it was so hard to get anyone to give me permission to publish a case study that was detailed enough that I've just, I, I stopped. I gave up, you know, between the NDAs that I sign and, you know, what their concerns were with privacy. I, I've never gone down this road because it's too complicated. So I think when it comes to getting case studies out of companies, what you're going to find is what they share with you. They're going to tell you, oh yeah, that was last week, but no, it was more like, you know, three years old, that they are notorious liars. And this is something that, you know, the big five consulting groups run into too, is trying to get those case studies written that you see on their websites. They have to offer a ton of freebies. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of what Mark said is trying to get that out of them is it's an expensive proposition in some cases. What you can do to get high level case studies for data is start watching some of the financial channels they always have like a tech hour and CEOs will go on and talk about what they've achieved last quarter with data. And you'll get some very high level case studies and you can dive into them then by following people within that business who will talk about individual pieces of it. Like there's a whole bunch of Peloton insiders that I followed to build out a post about what Peloton was doing and what they are doing with data. There's a whole bunch of insiders at, you know, other companies that I follow in order to create, like Zillow was one that I followed a while back to create sort of this tapestry of what was going on inside of the company. Cause they won't tell you directly, but if you follow enough people in a company that's working with data, you'll start to get like, you know, you can piece together enough where you can create a case study, but I would just be really, really careful and anonymize it, <clears throat> go by industry and company size, don't use company name. So like a major retailer in whatever country's marketplace or a major manufacturing company in, don't actually use their name because they can they can take exception to that too. It's super hard to, you know, even get case studies from, like Vin said, your own clients that have been successful using your product to get them to like vouch for it. Uh, hard to do, very, very hard to do. Um, so like, if you are looking for just case studies to kind of excite and inspire people maybe, uh, just look for it, it's already publicly available uh, on engineering blogs or like Vin said, looking at like news and, and things like that. I think that'll go a long way. Um, there's some comments here. Russell said, avoid asking anything that relates to IP as that will get you shut down in a blink. To have any chance of interaction, the topic should be generic and nothing that stands to adversely affect the target organization. 100% agree with that. Um, 
people, not people, uh, Kathy is asking who to follow on LinkedIn. Well, start by following me again. That's, that's a good place to start. Uh, and then looks like a bunch of other people that um, uh, Patrice has listed. So yeah, pretty much go to my podcast, The Artists of Data Science, and look at everyone I've interviewed. Uh, there's 200 episodes, so you're going to have to go through quite a bit of them and just follow everyone that, that I've interviewed because they're all quality people, uh, as well as everyone in this chat. Uh, so that's a good start. Kathy, does that answer your question? <laughs> awesome. Uh, any other questions coming through? I don't see anything on LinkedIn or on YouTube. I'll begin to wind down the hour then. Be sure to tune into the episode that was released today, again, with Christina Stathopoulos. So, Kathy, that's something you should follow for sure. Christina Stathopoulos, if you look up the hashtag, hashtag book a week challenge, uh, you'll see her all over there. Definitely follow Christina. She's awesome. And tune into the episode that was released with her today. Um, great episode. Uh, if you're going to be at ODSC in Boston on the 19th through the 22nd of April, so that's next week, um, holler at me, man. I'll be there. I'm looking forward to meeting as many people as I possibly can. Uh, I went ahead and got my booster shot. So, you know, I'm triple vaxxed. We wore my mask and everything. So, you know, daps and hugs for everyone. Uh, so please come through and say hi. I'll be over there at the, um, at the, the Pachyderm booth. Uh, Mark ODSC London, June 15th, 17th. Uh, that is not on the agenda. I'm going to ML Ops World in June, um, June 15th to 7th. So I will probably be too tired to travel uh, on the 15th, 17th, but maybe next year. Are you going to that, Mark, ODSC London? I am. I am. I, I booked my tickets before finding out that everyone here was going to ODSC East. But <laughs> I'm going to London, so that's fun. Are you presenting there at all? Nah, my, my company is just like, they gave us a, a stipend for, for uh, events and conferences. I was like, cool, London. <laughs> nice, nice. Man, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I probably won't go to ODSC London. That's two back-to-back two -back trips that are too close. If anybody lives in Denver, though, let me know. I'll be in Denver May 23rd to the 26th. Uh, be happy to meet up with somebody for a beer. So shoot me a message, send me an email if you're in Denver. Uh, that'd be dope. Um, Again, be sure to tune in to the episode that was released earlier today with Christina and tune into all the episodes. They're all amazing. Like the Arts of Data Science podcast is pretty dope. I might be biased, but hey, it's a good podcast. Listen to it. Um, and also, if you haven't already, be sure to follow the hashtag 66 days of ML Ops. Uh, I just completed day 10, but over the next remaining 56 days, uh, we're just going to go more and more into ML Ops. Uh, over the next few days, I'm going to be listening to and sharing my takeaways from some episodes from uh, the MLOps Community Podcast, starring Demetrius Brinkman and uh, and David Aponte. A great podcast. I absolutely love that podcast. Mark, I know you're on that show uh, the other day. Uh, Demetrius, let me know. So I'm looking forward to your episode. I think I'll. I think that will be the first episode I re review and uh, and and talk oh, no. about. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I'll be I'll be uh, sharing what I take away from there, and then. Uh, while I'm at ODSC, I'll be going to MLOps specific talks and I'll talk about what I've learned in those talks. But then after that, I'm going to go deep on some technical stuff. We're going to start with Docker's moving to Kubernetes and then talk about uh, all the different deployment stacks. We'll go from uh, Kubeflow to Selden. I'll talk about you know, 
obviously talk about pachyderm because I work there and then talk about how all those things fit together um, and talk about the work that my colleague Dan Jeffries is doing over at AIA, that is the AI Infrastructure Alliance. Uh, so keep an eye out for 66 days of MLOps if you go ahead and follow that. That being said, y'all, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate y'all spending some time with me today. Remember, my friends, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do some good? Cheers, everyone.